Design Closer, the podcast focused on discussing design's role in tackling complex societal issues. Our goal is to have conversations that inspire and help move the dial forward for organizations to become more human-centered in their approach to solving complex business and societal problems. In this episode, I speak with the brilliant George A., co-founder of Greater Good Studio in Chicago, a design firm dedicated to the social sector. George has an expansive career to date, working in many complex societal issues globally. He's an adjunct professor at the School of Art Institute in Chicago. Now, we speak about human-centeredness in this podcast. Surprise, surprise. Just what do we mean about when we say human-centered design? And we discuss the problems it faces when being applied and what is causing the term to lose its power and the role education and large consultancies play in that problem. We talk about how and what often gets missed when human-centered design work is undertaken and also cover off their criteria for taking on projects at Greater Good Studio and the role power plays in that selection process. It's a fantastic one. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking to George. Let's jump straight into it. George, I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. Longtime admirer mm. um, of your work, and I'm excited to speak with you today. How are you doing? I am great. Um, I was a little late this morning just kind of doing kids drop off, uh, which always takes longer than you think. Uh, but we are uh, fortunate that we have all three kids in the same school now. So there's a single ah, drop off and it's, it's magic. The dream. Yeah, it's, it's magic. the dream. Now, I was a little bit late as well because I was speaking to Sarah Drummond, but that's mm. another story altogether. Yeah. But let's let's start off. Um, we're going to cover off things today around what it means to be a human-centered designer. Like the, the term is bandied around and pe- people are selling this term and making money off this term. Mm-hmm. And on the human-centered design network, my understanding of human-centered design is, is one thing, but I'm keen to understand a little bit more about you, your your background, and how you got into the world of human-centered design. Yeah, I, I'm happy to talk about it. I um, was very fortunate that I got an opportunity to move from London uh, to the Chicago office of uh, of the of IDEO, uh, where <clears throat> I got to see, I think, a very expansive definition for design. It was quite remarkable to be able to go to mm. uh, sort of I wouldn't even say limited. It was just all that I had been exposed to was that design was responsible or a process or a job where you made stuff. And I was excited about making stuff. So I thought this is the coolest thing ever. Uh, but to go to a place where making stuff was only a portion of the portfolio uh, really kind of like threw, my, threw, uh, threw me for a loop because I, I just never seen anything like that. It was so expansive. Um, it was very... I was very excited uh, and felt very yeah. lucky to be able to be part of that team. Um, and that, that, that sort of exposure uh, got me to start thinking more around, it started helping me understand like actually we are designing the conditions in which behaviors can, can be affected. Can and flourish. some of that, yeah. And some of the times the stuff that we make uh, includes hard plastic injection mold stuff, uh, which mm-hmm. is kind of, again, maybe where I'd been uh, thinking. And occasionally I would do as part of the design team, uh, but it got quite into whole experiences and that sort of spectrum of, of stuff to experiences. Um, I feel very much like I owe a debt to, to that, uh, to mm. that place for having expanded my definition of it. Cause I don't think I would have seen, it. I would have come to it very late. I think. Yeah. It's something that I'm an industrial designer. My background is in industrial design. And I had that moment in my early twenties where I was doing a battery pack. I was doing a, a plastic ceiling for, uh, AA batteries. I remember saying, how many of these are we going to be producing? And they're like, about five or six million. And I'm like, 
they're literally going to have they don't even experience they're just going to open it up and they're just going to throw it straight in the bin it's not like they're going to hold on to it and going to go that's a good that's a good <laughs> cherish packaging. it yeah i'm going to hold on to that one that held my aa batteries <laughs> and i was like wow this is really bad i'm like holy soly this, this stuff that i was doing in university was like cars and you know all the dreaming stuff that we we think about in universities and the reality of it i was like hello this stuff is not good so um you got to that point when you were in, within your career you were you were deep in your career at that stage so tell us a little bit more around greater good i know you're a co-founder with sarah um and the greater good studio is one of the, the beacons and of centeredness that i look to in human centered design in america but tell us a little bit more around how long you've been going and also what kind of work you take on <laughs> hold on is that a seagull that's amazing um, everyone, I, everyone who listens to this podcast i love that got seagulls i so, so love um, that you have a seagull and it wasn't even <laughs> like an affect it was actual real seagulls um i'm thrilled that there are seagulls in this podcast um yeah. sarah and i uh don't have enough seagulls in our life um <laughs> We started 10 years ago, actually. It was, it was a, uh, it's kind of amazing for us to be able to say, look back at this and go, wow, we, we, we've hit a fairly significant milestone. Yeah. Huge milestone. It's, it's nuts. Um, and I think from probably most small businesses, it's just, are you still in business? Yes or no. It's a very, very binary question. If you are, okay, I'll thank God. That's it. Good. And then the secondary questions are like, well, okay, have we, are we doing financially? Uh, Hmm. are the projects, um, the ones we want to do? What kind of portfolio have we are we now sitting on? What kind of portfolio are we looking at ahead of us? Like kind of pipeline, um, how are the team doing? There's all these sort of questions that go through our minds. Um, mm. But the the category of work that we do, though, I think is interesting because I think for us when we started, we were trying to work out how do we do this kind of uh, supposedly in quotes like work that's good because we talked about. We could see so clearly when we were doing work in the commercial sector, both for myself and for Sarah, we were both a little frustrated about the opportunities we would get that would yeah. be maybe once a year on projects that felt really good, where we were using design to work on something really complex and social in, in nature. And then the rest of the time, it was always back to the same kind of like consumer electronics that we were working mm. on, furniture products or whatever else it might have been. And we did feel this is good. So we thought, what if radical idea... All we did was all day, every day, the stuff we did once a year. And if that could be a full-blown business, what would it take to do that? And Mm. one of the things that we, I think, very quickly came to was the realization that we probably don't want to start with a regular design business and then somehow over many years migrate slowly the portfolio to become more social. I think we said, let's just go for a minute from scratch and what that means primarily is we have to change who our clients are. So mm. it's not as though there were like tons of people like Pepsi or, you know, like Starbucks knocking on our door anyway. But when mm. you start out, you know, starting at zero, more typically one would kind of look for commercial clients because they're the ones that you think have money to do design mm. work. And I think what we wanted to do was like, let's not start down that path at all. Can we just start with nonprofits, foundations and government clients? Yeah. Because their problems, the issues that they face not only are they dramatically more interesting and more complex, but I think by starting by that by that entire category, the whole social sector, we weren't trying to wean ourselves off an, like a, off an addiction. We were just starting with a healthier diet from the start. It was a very lean diet, I'd have to say, but the yeah. diet was already sort of like what we wanted to do. And I think mm-hmm. that slow business of working out over the last 10 years of how do we become more sustainable on that diet that is different than the 
dare I say the other like meat eating diet, but if I'm going to make the analogy, going yeah. all vegetarian over here, that actually we can get a lot of sustenance. And I think what we've been able to determine is actually this is a full blown, reliable, yeah. sustainable business. Because I think in my head, and probably for many for others, the narrative would say if you want to do work on complex social issues, it has to be some type of um, give back program or some type of favor or a hackathon to somehow offset the other stuff you've been doing that you don't really mm. want to do. That sort of yeah. exchange always seemed to be the, the common narrative, and I found that very frustrating. Yeah, no, absolutely. If you want, we could, I'd like to go back a little bit more in time to around the inception of Greater Good. And you mentioned there about, you know, typically you, you'd naturally gravitate towards the corporate clients yeah, because they've got the budgets, they've got the money and so forth. What did that look like and what kind of criteria were you using to approach the clients that you wanted to do the work with and how did you identify them? You know, um, it, we, we've never been particularly good, if, if I can be honest, yeah. about doing outbound business development. Uh, mm. So there wasn't an awful lot of targeting, um, but we certainly knew that there was an identification that we wanted to work with nonprofits, foundation, government. What we did find, though, which is kind of why we've ended up having a a fairly, I think, a good ear and a good eye for spotting good clients, is the idea that within the social sector of, of you know, nonprofits, foundation, government, there's an incredibly wide range of of organisations that can be very confusing as to what they need and what we might want to do for them. So yeah. the need for having a criteria or a rubric, clumsy already was. Are we working with nonprofits or are we working with for profit clients? Okay, well that's already a big category right there. But there within nonprofit foundation government, we realized that actually there's a number of different components that would make up a good project for us. You know, things that are practical in nature in terms of like, can we actually do the work? Do we have capacity? Mm. Those things are sort of like fairly fairly obvious. It's actually to do with the nature of the work itself. Mm. And what we determined over it took a long time to figure this out, was are we shifting power in any way to what degree have we changed anything in the world that is already a complex social phenomena that yeah. is often the case where power the way it was default distributed was often kind of given to of high concentration to some people and yeah. very little to others that's often the context we're working in so when we see opportunities that you know other people come to us and we, we perhaps see an opportunity to, to maybe apply for mm. we're kind of assessing what is the role of us what is the role of the client and actually in what way has the community been involved in the creation of this project at all and a lot of those factors can be very confusing a but mm. and sometimes very opaque but it has to be some determination of what do we think is the success of this project and well, well, we can never guarantee it. We're trying to kind of project into the future. As the project becomes real, what are we going to face? So we end up asking questions of ourselves and of our clients, things that we wish somebody would have told us six months into a project, but we're yeah. doing it before it starts. And that somewhat comes because we've now done a bunch of projects, but also we had you know probably 10 years of, of work experience uh, before starting Greater Good. Yeah. So we're able to anticipate some of those pitfalls. Absolutely. You're, you're not, you know, kind of green. You're not just coming out of university. You've got that that level of experience. But I want to ask you a bit more about that power structure. Like we understand that there's social constructs at play and there's 
power is sit, sitting in, in situations that we find ourselves in on a day-to-day basis. When a client comes towards you and they propose working together, are you at that stage trying to understand the power structures at play or do you start a project off as, a, as an exploratory piece to try and understand those constructs? How do you approach that? Uh, that, that what you just described sounds so much more sophisticated probably than what we do. But I'd say <laughs> that the assessment around power is already happening mm. on the very first call uh, because the okay. signs of how power asymmetry shows up can be present on a 60-minute phone call for sure. But one has to be res- ready to be able to look for it. Uh, it's not fair to say that that particular person on the call has a full understanding of power already mm. or they, they understand the power that they have access to because of the organization they work for. Or it's not even fair to say that they understand the full history of how yeah. power shown up in the in this in that uh, context, and, and neither do we. But what you can be aware of is, to what degree is this person looking for primarily a vendor or a partner? That that's a that will be a yeah. first clue. Love and that. what happens is that when there are vendors being sought, one tends to fall into a almost like a default asymmetry where clients have a lot of power and you have very little. And you were at their back and core. And that's sometimes kind of what is necessary for a project to get done. We want nothing to do with projects like that. But yeah. there are plenty of projects and an enormous volume of work that happens in the world, particularly in design, where someone has a request and you go do it. Like, like it's very yeah, clear, the executional role. Very transactional, yeah. very executional. What I think we'll be trying to work out is to what degree does the person on the call understand either the context that we're talking about the history of it, and what is their particular alignment with power? Are they looking mm. to disrupt things or are they looking to affirm things? And sometimes affirming it is easier. Affirming the asymmetry that's in place means that um, I'm an ascending executive within this large, let's say, healthcare corporation, and I just need this project to get done. Mm. That sounds great. I'm not sure if we want to do it, but I- I'm glad that that's your, that's your objectives. But then there are some who will come to us saying, I'm new into this role. Um, I work for an organization that has been very clumsy with its power for a long time. And I'm here to disrupt how that goes in the future. I'd be interested in working with someone who could understand that. And I think mm-hmm. that that's been really, I think, probably one of the tougher challenges is helping our clients realize that somebody like us, not, not just us, but other people like this, are interested in those conversations. Hmm. That they see design as a tool to disrupt power, not as a tool to make cool shit, and that 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 is very that's hard. That's very very rare to find organizations and clients who can understand that. Like they see utility in design; they're not just hmm. fetishizing it. I I love that. It's something that you've kind of crystallized an awful lot of things that have been in my mind about about design and using power. It t- tends to be, a se- honestly, it was a secondary or tertiary thing for me. You know, I'd look at projects and I'm like, okay, that's a cool project. You know, they seem to be wanting to make things better. But when you look at it from a power perspective, and are they actually willing to shift, knowing that there's a problem out there, we've all accepted that there's a problem out there, then I think it's a much more powerful approach when you're selecting clients and selecting work that you want to spend your time and energy on. Yeah, I think I think how we often think of the conversation we have in business development, I think of it less as what is our strategy to get new projects, but rather what is our strategy to conserve the energy we have? 
because I'm yeah. trying to preserve my team's energy to work on projects I think that are only of the very uh, best framed opportunities for change, which means I have to set them up with the very best clients I can find. That's not always mm. the case, but many yeah. of them are really, really remarkable people that I'm, I'm just so grateful exist. And that mm. energy conservation means I'm very guarded about who and how we spend our time with. Mm. And I do that as a way of respect for the team, but also because I'd, I'd, I'd hate for there to be a, a misalignment mm. uh, or what we found in, you know, unfortunately to our own chagrin, projects where we reveal some big insight and a client actually is not only uninterested, they're trying to bury it. They're trying to like ignore that this. Impressive. Yeah, because what they found, and this again, it's not always the case, but there's often a reckoning. There's like a moment mm. of reckoning on the project where our team, um, and just through the process of doing the work so much with community members, will come to a point where you go, oh shit. Uh, actually, a lot of this project is has been either misthought or misframed. And or a client might actually be part of the perpetration of the problem in the first place. That's a very difficult thing to kind of navigate. But yeah. it, it actually does happen on a fairly regular basis. And it can't be, we just can't ignore it. Yeah. You know, like we you have work. To address it. Yeah, but that's the thing. So, so we work in as a, as a for profit consultancy. So we're not being. We're not being given money as a as a nonprofit and then going to do service work, which is so much of what our clients do. We've been hired by a nonprofit to be foundation, and they often have the access to those communities. But in many cases, because it's a, an organization that can hire a design team, they have a fair bit of power. Hmm. So what can happen is that we might act in the shadow of their power when we go do our work in community. Hmm. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, like. I'm interested in the in the element of when you identify those potential partners or clients that are contributing to the problem, they're compounding the problem. How do you approach that with the client that has taken you in? Because it could be seen as being um, highly conflicting for them and, and being able to manage that process of saying, mm -hmm. actually, it could expose the practitioners that within your organization and they say, okay, well, we're somewhat, somehow accountable for this. It's going to make us look bad internally. What advice do you give to people who find themselves in that situation? Yeah, so I try that from the very first first call. Mm. I'll even suggest, you know, um, our team has a pretty good track record of discovering things um, that are of great interest to, to you mm. and to our community. And in those insights, we might find actually that there is a role that you may have played in the context in which we're trying to solve. Um, how will you and your team respond to that kind of feedback? I'll ask straight up. Um, sometimes it takes uh, the folks I'm on the call with kind of taken aback. Uh, yeah. Sometimes they'll be they'll say, "Well, let me take that under consideration," or and this is becoming actually more of the trend. Sometimes they'll say, "That's exactly why we called you." Okay. So in those cases, somehow some something we're doing right on the on the external communications end means that somebody is getting that there's a value in what we do in that exposure, which means yeah. we're looking for clients who are secure enough in their own standing and in their own organization to be reflective and say, we can't change to this next level without looking at ourselves and looking mm. at how our work is actually being sh is showing our in community. And that that is radical. Yeah, it's it, really it, remarkable. It is radical in its approach. Um, 
the human centered aspect of it. Like when, hmm. when, when you look at the Greater Good Studio and also being part of the Human Centered Design Network, there seems to be multiple definitions um, of human centered design that are out there. And there's the consultancies, the big consultancies, like the big four, the big 10, whatever there are, there's hmm. loads of them. Hmm. They sell this human centeredness piece alongside business transformation and so forth. But in my experience, it very rarely happens. Okay. Like that human centered approach never really gets understood. Why do you think that is? Well, it can de- it can certainly depend on what exactly is being is being done. Uh, there has been a huge proliferation of uh, trainings and courses that would make the activities themselves mm. of the phases of human centered design be very uh, repeatable, which I think is great. Generally, I think that I'm, I'm thrilled. Um, does it take a lot of practice? Absolutely. Just like Absolutely. if I were to watch a number of YouTube videos on how to do heart surgery, I'm not going to be good at it. Okay. <laughs> Uh, but I would have, ne- I would have perhaps gotten a certificate that could have said, "Okay, you have now gone through that course." PDF. <laughs> Great. Okay. Uh, but to do it repeatedly and then to be able to kind of catch it, uh, catch all of the sort of like the squiggly bits that kind of come out the edges between phases, uh, that definitely takes a lot of practice. What I tend to find though is that um, human centered design has hewed itself, hewn to the premise of I have a complex business problem that needs to be solved which is why I think that proliferation of those uh, consulting firms to bring on human-centered design practices has become mm. more the norm. So if it is, let's say, I'm trying to increase the, the this quarterly result um, around some projected business goal, whatever it might be, there is a lot of lot of merit for, for trying human-centered design towards that goal. Um, mm. I think where it has become exciting for us is how do we now do that type of practice in, in, in areas that are a lot more complicated and I have yeah. a lot more history. So so that that, that would be just me kind of petitioning for why human centered design and social sector makes sense. But you, your question was, why is it not working out as well? Yeah, what's causing this? Um, like so the big consultancies out there, they're talking about human centered design. And it's, it's happened in, you know, over the last decade. It's not something sure. that's new. They say that they're doing this thing. But very rarely will they look at it from the perspective that you just outlined around power, the importance of being able to listen and the importance Mm. and the value that they place on experimentation and learning. But most importantly, the ability to put the person in the center and truly understand them. It seems to be a very superficial approach that's been taken by a lot of people uh, out there. And it kind of it upsets me at a very deep level when I see people talking about, I do human centered design and they, they throw it in there almost with business model and all these different things. Mm. It's not human centeredness is a, is a deeper piece. And I'm keen to get your perspective on what might be causing that. Is it education? Is it, you know, we're not educating students and emerging talents enough to really be able to talk about what human centeredness is. Um, is it uh, the business processes has consumed human centeredness and what's come out of it is a business centrified human center design thing i'm trying to understand what's causing this piece because the, the, the stuff that you're talking about there that you do at the greater good studio mm-hmm. will make the world a better place okay uh, i hope so but you know well, like I, I think i think it's it's very differently framed um the human center design way that we did maybe a little embarrassingly we thought we were going to do a straight copy paste. 
Okay, when we first mm. started out, we thought we we're going to do a copy paste of everything we'd learned on complex business problems and just apply that to social sector issues. And we found how okay. how much of a liability we became when we did that. So we've now had to learn what have we got to unlearn from human centered design, what have we mm. added, and how much more effort do we have to put up front into the framing of the project itself. So what have so, you unlearned? Well, okay. So here's here's some of what's so so confusing about human centered design. The the premise, okay, that we have humans in the center would always assume that basically whatever we do it through this analysis of, of understanding people's behavior will surely always be good for them. And I think that that unfortunately has not always been the case. So uh, there are not as many stories or narratives around how horrifically bad human center can become, yeah. human center design can go. Uh, but the Julie cigarette is probably the one that I go to uh, most often because it stunned me to find out that they were that was the the result of two Stanford grads studying at the D school being, from what I can what I've heard, mm -hmm being uh being advised Mentor. by david kelly and yeah. the idea that somehow they missed the fact that they were going to create a new highly addictive product to replace yeah. smoking which was the original premise yeah. was conveniently forgotten about when they got off at about 18 or f eight to 15 billion dollars by altria so the idea that you could study humans and make something a a response to that human behavior that you studied I would argue means that you've made a product that was far more damaging in the world than had you yeah. simply not studied human design and just studied a traditional industrial design or engineering course. Because then you would have simply made a really cool product that didn't that wasn't designed to be so uh, predatory. I don't think that they would have said it that way. No. But it did prey upon so many of the weaknesses that were in smokers. The one of the key yeah. insights was, I don't want to smell of smoke on a first date. So how do we make sure that there is no lingering um, olfactory issue with this highly addictive product? You don't get to that kind of insight if, unless you understand what is at, at stake for smokers. Yeah. Like that type of stuff is, is insipid. Do you think it's a case that people who or have been educated about human centeredness, it almost feels like if you practice and you you put a project through this that it almost gives you full license to say that we'll have used human-centered approach the outcome suddenly is uh oh no we're, we're human-centered designers we're okay you know this this bit is okay we've done that yeah i think that is exactly what is my fear is mm. that it provides enormous cover and in yeah, it providing cover it. it provides uh enormous liability for uh leeway to do quite a lot of harm and I think mm. one of the big things that we've been trying to unlearn, going to go back to one of the questions you had, is to what degree does the work we do, how, how harmful is it? Uh, mm. Who have we harmed already? And who will we be likely to harm going forward? So part of what we've been trying to do as a studio is work out what are the threads externally where harm prevention and just understanding humans in general, and perhaps even the psychology of those humans, um, who do we who do we need to go look to for understanding, and how can we incorporate those principles into now this human centered design plus plus plus, uh, whatever mm -hmm. this is going to become? Because it's not enough to do straight human centered design, and I think what's been a little troubling is when you have people who are freshly trained, who um, might work day to day on a product for. Um, Man, somebody worked on this thing. They came to me. They said, oh, we just did a new personal shopping experience for Nordstrom, okay? 
And the next project is I'm now going to work out how to improve math tutoring for sixth, uh, sixth graders, eighth graders. So they had just come from working in a retail experience and now going to understand the, the, the complex social dynamic, the power symmetry between a teacher, a tutor, and a student. And that's their experience. So, they, they, but they reference it in earnest to say, well, I'm qualified. So, okay, well, <laughs> let, let's go over there again. So your last research experience and the last five were primarily around people who had the aid their money, but also yeah. they were choosing to do something that was benefiting their self-image versus a scenario where a child may not have even asked for tutoring, could have been their parents. Then you have tutors who may or may not be in the classroom, okay, who were there trying to get paid. Then there are teachers who are already, you know, pulled in 15 different directions. And the potential list of alignment, this is something I learned, between how a tutor teaches math and the teacher teaches math and the student kind of caught between the two can make for a very interesting scenario where a student may not know who should I listen to, but they're both grown-ups. Yeah. But I know one of them is going to get, well, hopefully both of them will help me get past this test. Yeah. Does that not fundamentally require a different shift in not only how we approach those problems, but also our own understanding of, well, did I go to did I get through math tutoring? Did my parents go through test prep at all? Am I a good student? Like that that shift, this is I think kind of maybe going on off a bit of a deep end, is no, no, I don't. understanding the context you're about to walk into to do your design work requires an understanding of yourself as a designer. It requires to know what to what degree what biases am I bringing into this context mm. and what privileges did I have access to that might shape how I viewed this context scenario? Yeah, this project. scenario. So if you are, okay, this is kind of going back a little to like human centered design and business. If my equivalence of going into a project for Nordstrom is, well, I, you know, I grew up amongst with my parents would take me to personal shoppers. Great. Yeah. Have at it. And maybe the empathy gap is, well, I've never gone shopping with a personal shopper, so I'm going to like shadow a personal shopper. Go for it. I'm thrilled. But if the empathy gap is, I've never been in a household where there is both parents working, okay? Math tutoring is going to be the only thing that's going to get me out of this potential you know, household situation because math is my strong suit and the other parts are, are failing. That might be an enormous gap that might be required an awful lot of, I don't even know training is going to do it. Just like a, a level of understanding that requires very little judgment. And what often mm. happens in that empathy gap is bias, judgment, presupposition, a whole bunch of things that can be very harmful. And that type of risk gets downplayed a lot when they say, well, I just worked on Nordstrom. I'm ready to now do something more complex. Mm. And I would say, are you sure? Are you but, prepared for that? Yeah. And I think man, this kind of stuff drives me nuts because... It's not as though I knew it either, and I don't think anybody else typically, I'm not mm. expecting you to, but to just wander in and just assume everyone's going to like fawn over you, which is frankly how I thought we were going to be, is both yeah. cringe-inducing, but also I see it. I see it in a lot of, of scenarios, and I worry, how did we get like this? How did we get to a place yeah. where designers get welcomed into scenarios they don't understand, and then also probably get paid a lot of money to do it? Yeah. Unfortunately, that that's... Um mirror that you held up to your face just there a second ago was very similar to me in um, some of the approaches I'd worked on a lot of corporate stuff and then now it's time I think, I think I'm going to do some government work mm. 
And when I did it, um, I just wasn't ready for that that level of kind of realism. I wasn't skilled enough either. And I wasn't, I didn't have the tooling to prepare myself for, you know, what I actually saw and what I heard when I conducted the research. Is that something that you see as um, a weakness in business approach to to human centeredness? Or where does it come from, the whole kind of element that as a practitioner, you could walk into a scenario that you're not you're not ready for. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Rachel Dikas or Dikas mm. um, has spoken about this issue before. She's a, um, a trained social on the podcast worker recently. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's good. I'm so glad to hear yeah, that. Uh, she's yeah. a uh, trained social worker uh, and now a designer, so she does both together and is cognizant of of, of this risk. Uh, and she referenced for me a piece that I still have yet to read called "Practicing Without a License." Uh, there is a phenomenon of of designers who are just skilled enough in understanding how things can occur in terms of like ethnographic research, but maybe yeah. not aware of not only perhaps the harm that can come from it, but the risk of misinterpreting that data into some some insight that will then be used against those very same humans. You know, like, yeah. like the Jewel example. And I think what what we're talking about is a willingness to recognize both of, both of yourself as a perpetrator of of some harms but also recognizing well what have i what have i done so far and what am i doing internally to try to get me a little further ahead so that i don't make this harm again mm. um that is not paid work there's no there's yeah. no courses for that typically most of it is skill based but i think yeah. as design starts to go in further and further out of its lane into encroaching on areas that have licensure, uh, skills training, uh, ethical practice, things like you have in medical and in social work mm-hmm. for sure. Those areas are perhaps unprepared for the onslaught of all these invading designers, but designers are being you know, given a red carpet to work somewhat carte blanche into areas they don't perhaps understand. Yeah. And, and I think at best, if there's any discussion around harms, it would be about how do you protect the researcher from uh, uh, not being harmed themselves rather yeah. than as the researcher be, be, being a perpetrator of harm, which, man, if you really want to go there, has racist roots. I'm going to just say it. There is a okay. strong history of a lot of white researchers in the world going into foreign lands, in quotes, okay? Yeah, and it's colonialism. Studying them, uh, understanding them, civilizing them, trying to do this kind of, um, saviorship through research yeah. that presumes I can't be doing any harm and that this person needs me to save them. Incredibly troubling. Absolutely. So, Abs- Absolutely. Can you give me examples of some of that stuff that I know people out there listening will, will find that jarring to hear? And it's still at play out there at the moment. It's it's still prevalent in, in society, that, that mindset. Do you have any anecdotal stories that you'd be happy to share around that topic yeah i mean i had uh something that comes to mind is a, a call i had with a business development uh moment with someone mm. who was uh some shadowy figure that had lots of money uh being represented by the person on the call who was i think organizing a project and they're asking for me if we were interested in participating in some they called it two generate two gen uh college persistence program something where they were going to either help people get into college and get through, or if they were being really ambitious, actually building a college in this local community. 
And I think what we what I found to be so problematic was uh, an unwillingness to recognize what if the community says they don't want that? What if it turns out the community wants nothing to do with whatever you've, you've asked for? Mm. What if, in fact, you the money that you're about to raise can just be given to community-based uh, organizations that are already doing that kind of work? Yeah. And even more, what if none of that ever can get credited back to this donor? Could you guys handle that kind of news? And I think that they were really surprised that this was the kind of conversation we, that we that I was trying to have. So the risk of having us or anybody going to the community to say, here's this thing we have, do you want it? As in like, I have this thing, which in this case is a, a college uh, or like a works program. There's nothing inherently bad about that. It's the, yeah. it's the assumption though that you need it. And that, that assumption of you need it, so how much do you want it is the role that we've been asked to play. And I find that very problematic. I, I want to start from a place where we wonder, um, perhaps rather than saying you're a deficit, here's how do we fill it? What assets do you already have and what are you trying to build towards on your own accord? If any of that aligns with what we have, that's great. But I actually want to know what you want to do. And perhaps by learning what that is, can we now bring whatever resources we have to that response that was determined by this community? That That shouldn't be radical. But to do it that way would mean that we can't save anybody if we don't assume that they need saving. Then we become more like accomplices or allies, yeah. somebody that kind of wants to build with the process that's heading towards a momentum they're already self-determined rather mm. than me assuming from my position of, of in many cases, of great privilege that I know better. And actually, Jerry, can I, can I talk about this for a second? Oh, yeah. Something I think that's going to change over the next probably decade or so is a growing number of individuals entering the design field who already have decades of lived experience. Mm. So that empathy gap that we talked about earlier, I think will be less necessary to fill since they already have it. But that lived experience often has been the determining factor of whether they get into the design industry in the first place at all. But I think mm. that's changing. I think we're seeing more people who are uh, looking for those individuals in design studios, but also those same individuals are starting to start their own design studios. So I think mm. we're going to see less of a gap to be filled with like a leap of faith, but rather a self-determination of like, I'm a member of this community. Not only am I going to do work that you know elevates those voices, but I'm going to be able to contribute to it too. That I, th I think that's really... That's powerful. That's really exciting. Yeah, and that that would mean that it's going to be a very different kind of design work if you if you think by the the nature of who does the work then is different themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Going back to the piece there, you were talking about um, it seemed to be all around framing, you know, like that, that assumption that uh, we've got a problem and we want to we want to approach it. What advice do you give to people out there who might be in governments or or councils or? local councils, whatever um, you want to use. When they're thinking like that, it's almost at the, the very inception of projects. How can they sort of move away from that and mitigate that risk that the framing is so off that it leads them in the wrong direction? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd want to check to see um, what, why are we getting to ask this question? Um, to Where's what degree? Where did it come from? Uh, if people tell me that the, there's lots of data that supports it, I will say, of course there is. There's always data that supports every argument. Uh, yeah. I'm thrilled. Um, I like to check to see 
um, how many people from that very community did you ask for them to vet your question? There, there may not be much. And um, is that a code, like a, a sort of an approach, co-design as an approach to this, uh, an inclusivity of having representatives from those communities to be part of those framing conversations? That's incredibly rare, though, that what yeah. I'm trying to expose is in, in, in being a kind of annoying and asking these rhetorical questions is, how did you frame this such that we already have a scenario where this group is in deficit and yeah. that it is out of your great largesse that we end up working on it? Because it feels, great as though, question. it feels as though we have already assumed that if they are not grateful for this work, that somehow they're fools and that um, perhaps we have to do and try, uh, you know, try a little harder as yeah. opposed to realizing, wait a second, imagine anyone getting a gift that they didn't ask for you know like yeah. you know like jerry if you ever gotten like an ugly sweater from like a relative right yeah if you imagine that <laughs> you you go oh great this doesn't fit it's not the color i wanted i don't even need i mean it's summertime i, I don't need a sweater i didn't ask for this at all but like thanks yeah how much of social change work isn't this ugly sweater from a relative like a well-meaning relative it's it's very awkward and I kept yeah. have to wonder, like, all that money and time could have been spent by just like either giving the raw materials to the person themselves, or just asking, "What would you like instead?" Absolutely. I can spend the next fifty hours doing something. Would you like me to work on something else? Would yeah. you like to, let's say, just leave? Let me just leave you alone. That's an option. Uh, absolutely, and you know what? It, it's a conversation that this is doing. We've had yesterday about swag. We were oh, like, I, I did something for someone recently and they were giving me <laughs> some swag. And I didn't want it. Okay? I, I honestly don't, I don't want it. Look at me. If anyone knows me, I wear the same color t-shirt <laughs> every day. Okay, right? I don't wake up one day and kind of go, oh, I wish I had a green, a green t-shirt with a logo on it. <laughs> Do you know what? If I did, I would buy one myself. Right. But right. the whole approach to it and framing it in that way is like saying, how, much, how many things do we get thrown upon us is an interesting conversation to stimulate some of these thoughts yeah yeah so you know we we often are, are very curious about how did this come to be and mm. it, i think probably the safest place i found myself when doing those conversations both because i'm representing myself as a as a you know co-founder uh, but i find that trying to represent voices that are never in the room mm. like if i was to ask a question of someone if they were community members here present They'd be wondering, what the hell are you talking about? What is what is what is going on? You know, I have like the potholes in the street and never yeah. getting attended to. I love that you're trying to talk about, like, you know, let's get a new a new college here, but like I can't even get to work without damaging the car that I've got to get repaired. Like these things are pressing issues. And that 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 scale sometimes I think can, can throw people off. You have folks who are coming to us with usually a, a, either a bit of wealth or power or both. And their 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 understanding of how time works is so long term, mm. it would actually present a chance for any discussion about short term goals as being superficial. So no, they're not superficial. They're very real. If I'm a community member and that pothole is you know and everything else that's going on on my street is pressing, it's not because I don't want to think about long term. I I can't afford to. This yeah. is bothering me every single day. So I need your attention on this right now. I'd love to get to a place where we can plan out what the thing will be 10 years from now. But between now and those 10 years, 
My life is significantly harder than it should be. I'd like some help around here. Yeah. George. I'm just ranting, is, Jerry. No, no, you're not. Rant. Like, There's so many conversations we, we, we could have within this conversation. I've had to pause in times kind of going, hmm. <laughs> but look, I know people. You, you're speaking at the SD and Gov. Um, oh, yeah. Soon. Next week, isn't it? Yeah, next yeah. Week? It's really soon. It's, it's coming up. Um, so people, I will try and get that one out uh, before now. If not, um, you might be able to get it retrospectively. I'm not too sure mm. if SD and Gov do videos. Um, but you're in for a treat speaking to George uh, today. If people want to find out more information about Greater Good Studio, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, go to greatergoodstudio.com. And then, Jerry, can I also put into the chat? Is there a chat here? Can I put into you your a chat here if you want? I'll, I'll throw it into the show notes. Where is the chat? Here we go. Okay, all right. I'm going to put this into the chat a link uh, for the social design, social change by design database. Uh, that's a place that um, I'd love to have more people be aware exists for a lot okay. of folks who are wanting to do this kind of work. They're often wondering, what am I? Where? Who does this? Yeah. So we put together this. Uh, now it's 222 entries on this database. It's a global directory of organizations, both from consultancy through to government agency. Um, it's not not completely comprehensive, obviously, because I don't know half the people that should be on this list. Yeah. But if you look at that link, uh, there's a submission form as well uh, for adding new entries, either for yourself or new ones that you Fantastic. know of. It's, it's becoming really strong, I think. so. Maybe uh, we might link to that from thisisaidcd.com. Oh, I'd love that. That'd be so great. That could be a really cool thing to do. George, it's Jerry, been great. So lovely. I feel that went by in the flash. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, before we do that, we're going to do a wrap up. George, okay. thanks so much for your time today. You're very welcome, Jerry. Thank you so much for having me on the show. So there you have it. That's all for this episode of Bringing Design Closer. If you like this episode, feel free to visit thisisaidcd.com where you can access our back catalogue of over 100 episodes with episodes related to service design, product management, design research, and much, much more. If you're interested in design and innovation training, feel free to check out our business, thisisdoing.com, where you can join online classrooms and learn from the world's best design and innovation leaders. Join the This Is HCD newsletter where you'll receive updates from the network. And also, if you're interested, apply to join the Slack community on thisishcd.com. Stay safe and until next time, take care.